We're back on the Fan Morning Show, Baby Friday. Justin and Ailish. Recapping the Raptors' seven-game home winning streak coming to an end on Canadian Basketball Night at Scotiabank Arena. There were some good vibes for some players and 200 family members and friends if you're at Andrew Nemhart. A couple players are ready to go. A couple players are not ready to go. Always ready to join us. And adding more and more to... The introduction of her name, I noticed, Katie Heindel, NBA writer at Dime, Slam Magazine, Gaming Society. That's a new one for sure. The New York Times and Yahoo Sports, Katie, it just continues to get longer and longer. We're going to need lengthier intro time for you. (laughs) Morning, guys. I always just have to figure out a way to, you know, pep pep you up first thing. (laughs) Well, we appreciate it because, you know, last night was a disappointing one if you're a Raptors fan. But before we get there, basketball night in Canada. Um, Just a really nice night to see some Canadian talent come out and perform in front of friends and family, obviously led by Andrew Nemhart. And we got to talk to his dad yesterday. So they've got an exciting thing going on with one son in the Sweet 16 and one son here with the Pacers. Um, Just your overall like pulse on where Canadian basketball is right now and if a night like last night gives any momentum. Yeah, I mean, that family must be thrilled, but I was thinking about this earlier. Like, I think it's sort of a, it's a worthwhile thing to be happy about having the complaint that Toronto was beat by a team led by mm-hmm. three Canadians on Canadian basketball night. Like, it's just not a complaint you could have had, you know, five to ten years ago. Uh, I think just with the growth that you're seeing uh I know that the the CEO of Canada Basketball literally mentioned this in the broadcast, but now I'm blanking on it. But how many Canadians, I think it's something like, you know, 30 plus Mm -hmm. playing in March Madness this year, just at the college level. We have about 23, I think, in the NBA, three in the W. That's just something that's going to, you know, increase season over season. Um, It's just really cool. Like, it's it's cool to be able to pay. You know, Canadians, I think, should maybe pat themselves on the back a little bit and with the growth of it and the fact that it's sustained growth. It's not something that just, you know, we had like a flash in the pan around Steve Nash Nash and like, you know, the rise of some pretty prominent Canadians. And then it went away like this has been a really steady state of growth for a long time now. Well, that's good perspective because uh, Ailish and I were a little fired up this morning, a little annoyed with what we saw last night, but it is a good reminder. We're getting tons of reminders, right? Like, as you mentioned, at the NCAA level, uh, the WNBA, uh, what we're seeing is more and more impact from Canadian players and Canadians, and it's very, very cool to see, even if in one night it comes largely at the expense of the Toronto Raptors, who maybe not didn't share the same urgency that we had, at least, approaching this four-game slate. But we'll get to that in a second because I want to ask you about, like, the NBA standing for guys like Nemhard and Matherin, like it's one thing to be represented. It's one thing to beat the Raptors uh, on a Wednesday night when they were giving maybe 70% of what they could have. Um, but like, w- w- where do you see these guys in terms of their long-term future? Like Matherin was getting some real early season buzz. Maybe he's faded just a little bit. Nemhard looked awesome last mm-hmm. night. What, what kind of guys are these in terms of uh, your projection? Where do you see them uh, growing as NBA basketball players? I think they're great. And I think their growth and like the potential for their growth actually is a lot to do with the overall parity we've seen in the league. Like these guys might not be getting the same looks and the same opportunities if they were actually playing in, in a bigger or say more like quote, traditionally big and popular market. If the NBA was still structured that way, like I'm talking, if they were, you know, on the, the Lakers, if they were on the Celtics, if they were on one of these like 
really more prominent and 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 um, consistently competitive teams. The fact that they're on a team like the Pacers, who are still, as we saw last night, like you know, can deliver a wallop and are very technically skilled, um, and that they can step up in moments like this when they've got their you know their own injuries and their own outs does, I think, speak to the overall growth of talent and skill in the league and why I think it's been so cool to watch, frustrating as a Raptors fan, but so cool to watch a season like this where you've got teams like the Cavs and the East and the Kings and the West coming alive and just not, at again, just like, oh, this is not a fluke, you know, like this is just where the depth of talent and skill is. So guys like Nemhart and Mathurin, I think, can either stay and grow with the Pacers. There's definitely a market out there for them with other teams looking to emulate this kind of success because so many teams are stuck in the middle now and they can't just attract stars um, and they don't actually need to. So I think that's, that's probably the coolest thing for me. So in your mind, like how did the Raptors kind of step into this game into a, and the first domino, I guess, on this homestand uh, four games, all of which are winnable, all of which are against potential play in opponents uh, with the exception of the Detroit Pistons. Like I kind of feel like a bit of a moron thinking like yesterday we're talking about, yeah, you should win four games, three or four minimum. These are wow. these are so, so important. Mm-hmm. And then you get Fred coming out and like a pretty poor effort on the floor. Uh, one clearly where the Canadians on the other side looked like they were far more interested interested in making a statement and Fred's talking about ah, low energy and stuff like that. Like it just seemed like it was water off their back a little bit. And I'm a little confused how the urgency isn't at where at least we thought it should have been. Mm -hmm. I mean, desperate teams are always going to be tougher to win against that. I think at like any point of the season, but you know, now you've got desperate teams that are all vying for, you know, certainly in the East, like, vying for play in or better um, and trying to like stop their own slide in the standings in this last stretch. You know, the Pacers had that perfect mix. I think of being that desperate team, they're fighting for like probably the last spot in the play in, but also something to prove, you know, they're short Halliburton. They're led by the three Canadian players last night. I thought they were energetic, communicative. They were moving the ball pretty perfectly. They're picking off turnovers like TJ McConnell. Is so good at that. Their defense was really pressuring, but then I was like, oh, yeah, right. They're doing all the things that we've seen the Raptors do on their best nights, basically, to win against Toronto and, you know, capitalize on missing Scotty Barnes and Gary Trent Jr. and Precious Achua. I think the energy was, as you mentioned, was definitely lacking from Toronto, um, even where those three guys that I just mentioned have all misfired or I think have their low points on the floor this season to be out their size. And, of course, like without Gary shooting, I think the Pacers just figured out all the gaps really early and took advantage. Um, the Raptors looked really lost, I thought, on switches. And, you know, again, Indiana's such a fast team. They were able to just kind of slip through and, and take advantage of Toronto's confusion. Um, we kept, like, I, they had, like, a little bit of a run. In the, mm-hmm. Like, it was one of those, like, 19-3, like, oh, fake comeback kind of runs in the yep. third to close the game. <laughs> but <laughs> it seemed like that was all the energy, you know, they had for the rest of the game. Is there something that the so the Pacers beat or sweep the Raptors this season? It's not often that a team like really sweeps and just owns the Raptors in the three performances. Is it just a bad matchup? Was there something that they really exposed that maybe is telling you down the stretch here when the Raptors have a lot of must-win games, something that they can like you know tune up a bit when they look at why they got beat by a team three times in one season? I mean, they've also they also do this with the Pistons, right? I feel like Toronto has this kind Who of they fatal play next problem. too. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> of playing to, you know, the skill level of their team. And again, that's not a knock on like the, the Pistons and the Pacers. Cause as I said, to start, like teams are just 
technically much better and more talented with a lot more depth than they had even like three seasons ago. Um, but the Pacers, like, they're very, like, widely, you know, like I've mentioned TJ McConnell, like that guy is like a, like an otherworldly knack for just like timing and picking the ball off and like beat, like if you're sleeping a little bit or if you're kind of drifting, which Toronto can fall into these complacent lulls, a player like that's going to take advantage of you. And then, you know, as I mentioned too, you've got young guys with something to prove. It, the frustrating thing is on paper, a lot of that sounds like it mirrors what the Raptors should have. Um, but they really haven't like capitalized, I think, on their own deficits this season. Um, also, when a team like when you're in the same conference as somebody and you're starting to play them all the time, like you you can't just pull out the same rotations. You can't just kind of pull out the same game planning for them or they'll take advantage of you. And I just really think right now where the Pacers are, they're just trying to stay alive. And I think to a degree, it seems like they're trying to stay alive and in the postseason a little bit um, more than Toronto is. Yeah, they certainly had a level of urgency or buy-in that you would hope from a Raptors team that really needs some wins here, especially at home where they've been really great and they, they ride on the energy of that arena. They, they didn't allow for the fans to have too much energy unless you were one of 200 of Andrew Nemhart's friends. Um, the, 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 there's a stat that they put up on the broadcast last night that I wrote down because I thought it was really interesting. So the point differential by quarter since February 10th for the Raptors, they go from the first quarter with plus 46 to minus 39 in the second. Then they come back in the third, plus 40, and then they end the game in the fourth, minus 46, which is 28th in the league. So they go from second in the league to 28th in the league. And so these these lapses in energy or um, attention to detail or obviously just like riding the highs and lows of the roller coaster in-game of the Raptors. To you, when you hear a stat like that from 2nd to 28th in a 12-minute span, is that bench? Is that, um, uh, you know, losing focus? Like, how do you start to try to unpack such a stat that, I don't know, really surprised me when I saw that? Yeah, that's not like energy just like dissipating. That's like energy falling off a cliff. <laughs> That's really brutal. Um, I mean, I think it's just the sort of problems that have been plaguing the team um, all season. I'd say even into last season when you're you're kind of hoping for a spark based on gameplay, but you're not really being able to be generative of your own spark. We haven't really seen that on the offensive end. I think you come out, you're, you, you try and come, they, they, they obviously come out strong. Not, not last night, but they do typically come out strong as a team and then just kind of taper. I think your point about um, bench and depth there is pretty well taken. They, the the thing, the frustrating thing again about the Raptors is I feel like every season and even at the deadline, the idea was to kind of shore up the bench and think like, oh, we we actually have a bench. We've got some talent. We have some guys we can, you know, fall back on. That just hasn't been the case all season. Um, but again, I I wouldn't even say it's just that because you've got you know your core group of starters are used to playing these kinds of minutes. Like a part of this is conditioning, and they've been conditioning this way since. They were consistently making the playoffs. That hasn't tapered off. You know, Nick Nurse is still playing uh, his starters upwards of like 40 minutes a night when he can. Um, but I think probably the depth, probably just this time of the season, I think it's a certain buy-in of, of wanting to actually put forth the effort to make it. You know, I, Fred had said something kind of interesting um, in after practice this week that he said uh, they're going to be a hard out no matter what the, the where they end up but and this is just semantics but it's kind of funny to me because um 
saying they'd be a hard out and not a competitor does make me wonder where their heads are at. You know, like mm. if the goal is just to get there and you're not thinking or kind of projecting beyond, I do think that's kind of telling. And uh, I think to a degree that's been what's happening in games. Like you, you just can't coast in the NBA anymore. Like you can't coast with the play in. You can't coast with the middle of every conference just being as like tightly packed as it is. And, even with their injuries and it's been a tough season, you know, they've had 32 starting lineups um, that does speak to like the injuries and the frustrations surrounding the team this season, but to not have been able to figure out something that sticks or to just play every game, like its own individualized matchup, you know, and game plan for that as best you can. Uh, it's, it's disheartening. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. Truth do end up sort of slipping out, and maybe there was some truth there with uh, what Freddie uh, was saying there after practice. Um, was that an OG limitations night? Uh, you, you know, at least from an offensive perspective. Defensively, he's doing his thing. Four steals. It felt like he had more than four steals, to be honest, when I'm looking at the box score again. But when the three-point shot is not dropping, went one for seven last night, two for 13 overall from the field. Like, it looked a little sloppy. It looked like he... You know, it, there's not much of an impact if that shot isn't falling. It, it looks like there's not many other options for him, at least to try and score the basketball when that shot is not going in. Is that kind of emblematic of a player that's not, you know, complete by any means, at least at the offensive end of things? I will say as much as we're being a bit miserable about last night, um, I don't think I would place the blame kind of on the shoulders of OG because, you know, you look at um, just nights prior and like what happens when his shot does fall. I think last night, you know, be remiss if we didn't mention a lot of where it got actually close and it looked like Toronto could take it and they didn't was the result of a lot of like clutch and crucial shots just not falling. Sometimes you can't really account for that. I think last night, it just shows what happens when you've got a team with a pretty swarming, I think, pressuring defense, uh, making even somebody like OG Ananobi a little bit uncomfortable on the offensive end of the floor. Um, I think just with his defensive capabilities, sometimes he's just who is like keeping the Raptors, I think, in the game and, and trying to kind of staunch the bleeding on that end of the floor, which he did last night. So I don't think... I'm still like my stock or whatever you want to call it in OG is still really high, and I would still totally buy into him as a player and I think like a lasting part of this team just based on what he can do um because when when he's when he's shooting when he can perform that way uh defensively he's kind of the most clutch guy they have at times again maybe a problem of ceiling for the team overall not OG's problem yeah, not many teams are immune to having, you know, important contributors have off nights. And he had an off night, but uh, more more often than not, um, that has not been the case. Uh, watching Indiana, and it's like guards, 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 guards on guards. Uh, but TJ McConnell, like, why, why does it seem like it's an impossibility for the Raptors to grab a guy like TJ McConnell? I mean, we're watching a tournament right now, March Madness. It runs on quality guard depth, and I understand making the leap uh, being a guard at the NCAA level is much different than being a guard in the NBA. But, like, just a serviceable guy to not be thrust into positions that he doesn't belong in, but to just be the backup point guard for this team. Why is it that that seems to be this white whale that's impossible to capture? I mean, I think because TJ is probably the most valuable guy of his skill set in the league. So teams that have had him, and you know, that I think this speaks pretty well to that is the fact that he's only been on two franchises in his entire career. You know, he's uh, 
I think teams like really do pay their due dividends to hang on to him. Also, just because I think of what he can be generative of in, in locker rooms. Like you talk to, he's like your favorite NBA players, favorite player, you know, like he's, he's just like such a, again, yeah, a guy I would love to have in Toronto's locker room. Um, but he's, he's like been able to figure out, I think what his niche can be because he's someone, when you look even at somebody like Fred Van Lee, who who's done that as well, but just like TJ McConnell, maybe not the fastest guy, certainly not the biggest guy on the floor, um, but has figured out like what his bread and butter is, which is being a menace uh, and a pest where needed. And also just like talking guys up again, like that's, that's, that's somebody that I think no um, front office in their right mind is going to let walk if they can. Uh, and to be honest, like he hasn't, I guess somebody like that hasn't fit what the Raptors had been trying to build up to now. That might change the summer. You know, we've seen it hasn't necessarily worked. We brought in a more traditional center. Maybe we're going to start saying goodbye to some of these, you know, some of the vision six, nine is, is getting a little bit blurry. Um, but somebody like TJ didn't really fit in there. Now I think he does, but the team might be in desperation mode. <laughs> uh, we got Katie Heindel on the show this morning. Uh, let's let's shift to something a little bit more fun and exciting here. Um, <laughs> Sweet 16 is going on today. How's your bracket looking? How in tune are you with what's going on in the NCAA? I know you got lots going on on your plate. You write at every magazine and every network that there is possibly, but uh, have you had a chance to keep your bracket in tune? Is it busted just like the rest of us? Oh, it's completely busted. Yeah, it, it, it busted. Uh, it busted often and early. Oh no, same. <laughs> but like, I think I. I don't. I'm too much of a coward to put uh, any money behind it because yeah. I also know that uh, intrinsically, I love. I love the upsets. Like mm-hmm. I live for the upsets, especially the ones that we've seen. I feel like everything in the women's conference as well has just been like upset after upset. Mm-hmm. Um, men's too, uh, definitely, but like, there's just such like an electric energy when you see a team that's like seated, I don't know, like sub nine, come and take, take out, you know, and I know like it's a little bit more volatile in college basketball and those standings don't necessarily count the same way, but it's been a lot of fun to watch. I have to say as somebody who didn't necessarily follow it as closely, I find myself just kind of sitting down every night there are games on and just kind of flipping through until they get close, understanding now that like there's going to be more busts. Um, so I feel for everybody who's like maybe um, had more uh, meaningful contributions behind their brackets than, than me just like doing it for fun. Um, but it's been really cool. Katie, did you see uh, the Raptors show introduce bubble tea to Matt Devlin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, I you, absolutely did. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to share a meal, introduce him to something new, what, what would you give Matty Devlin to get his reaction? It's tough because they've done doubles and bubble tea, and both of those things are like mm. deeply rooted in my teenage psyche, uh, somebody who grew up in Scarborough. So it, it's tough. Um, but I think I think I would just like I would stick with the beverages. I would probably introduce him to Peanut Punch. I don't know if oh, either I don't of you know what that, that is. What's Peanut Punch? Okay. I'd like to be introduced. Uh, <laughs> it's basically like a peanut butter milkshake, but it's less thick. Wow. Uh, it's really good. You can get them if you go into like, I think like a lot of fresh goes and just like a, mm-hmm. a grocery store with like a good international section, you will find it. 
in the like Western Union and the Jamaican section um, will have like juice boxes of it, but you should look out for it. Uh, it's delicious. It's kind of like a, you know, consistency of milk tea without the tapioca, but based on how heavily he was like chugging, he loved that. <laughs> like he kept going back from, if you have, you have to watch yeah. the video of it. Cause like he kept reaching for it <laughs> and his like eyes like were lit up. He's like, Oh yeah. Like, but based on how much I think he liked that, I think he would just like down a, down a peanut punch. Yeah, it was like wow. it was like a kid experiencing ice cream for the first time. It was. <laughs> it was just like it was eyes were lighting up while he was <laughs> sucking back the tapioca. It was uh, it was pretty oh, hilarious. God. We got to try peanut punch. No, I'm, I'm already yeah, looking it up. Do. All right, we'll do that when I get back. Uh, Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you brought a little positivity to the segment. Always. It was a little negative, I gotta admit, uh, in the six a.m. hour. But a lot of things to be excited about in the basketball world, and we love having you on. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good day. That's Katie Heindel, NBA writer at every outlet imaginable. <laughs> She's a busy gal. All right. It's time for something to chew on brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. You can slurp on some peanut punch while you listen to this next clip. I'm intrigued, I gotta say. I'm already just Googling away here. Um, okay, so you know him, you love him. J.D. Bunkus made some uh, made some internet waves yesterday when he spoke to Tom Haberstroh of the Baseball Illuminati podcast. He was on the J.D. Bunkus podcast earlier this week, but it started to gain some traction yesterday when he spoke about Ben Taylor. So if you don't remember, Fred Van Vliet called out Ben Taylor for his brutal, brutal refereeing performance about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago now against the Nuggets, or how long ago was that? It feels like years and years ago. Nonetheless, Obviously, he called out Ben Taylor by name. He said that he was brutal <laughs> in a polite way. <laughs> so here is Tom explaining that maybe the NBA has quietly demoted Ben Taylor since this performance, maybe due to Fred Van Vliet or just looking through the books, but... It's very interesting. It's certainly something to chew or slurp on. It's definitely uh, something to chew on. I, like, I don't know if there's, like, correlation causation or whatever. Like, I don't know how much these things are connected. Tom Haberstraw did say yesterday to clarify, Ben Taylor has not been demoted or disciplined by the NBA to his knowledge because demoted is a loaded word, and he didn't mean to necessarily insinuate that. But the facts are facts, right? Like, he didn't have the ne- the responsibilities that he had been having in the time since after in the time after uh, the Fred comments, I, I feel like that'd be like a a weird situation. What are you looking? No, at I was for? just gonna play the clip. Oh, let's do it. That's okay. Continue talking. Oh, my bad. No, no I wanted ahead. to play it so then we can. Let's do it. Sorry. All right, let's play the clip. <laughs> interesting to me about this story is since that Fred Van Vliet rant, the NBA has actually uh, demoted Ben Taylor mm-hmm. in his assignments. So in the last five games, Ben Taylor has only been the crew chief once. Um, he's been the referee two, four times since that game, since that rant, um, which is a, a real abnormality with Ben Taylor. If you look at his previous 52 games this season, Ben Taylor was the crew chief in 41 of those games. Basically, four out of five games, he was the crew chief. But in the last five games since that rant the nba said you know what you're going to be the referee two in this one and then again referee two he was the ref he was the crew chief against the celtics houston game the other night and then ben taylor was the referee two for the next two games to put in perspective ben taylor hadn't been a referee two in back-to-back games all season after the fred van vliet it's happened twice so the nba i don't know if that's intentional or whether that's just luck of the draw but certainly the nba has taken a different tack 
when it comes to Ben Taylor's assignments, whether that's punishment or whether that's just, hey, we need to, we, you need to chill out a little bit. I think there's something there. Uh, he did walk it back a little bit on the air. He got radioed a little bit, but he was, Haberstraw did note, he was the crew chief for Atlanta, Minnesota last night. Right, but so in his like last six like- games, he was only the crew chief twice out of being the crew chief 41 of 52 games. It smells like like uh, slap on the wrist a little bit. Like, yeah. hey, maybe uh, maybe there was, some, there was some wrongdoing here, but uh, it's not like Ben Taylor's going to lose He's his not job. fired, but... Things are going to materially change from him. But, like, yeah, I think Freddie gets validated a little bit um, in this moment, and... I was always worried about like what the precedent that sends. If I'm the NBA, I'm like, do we do we really want to allow Fred to kind of get off scot free with this? And then they kind of double down on that stance where they don't really mind given the, what the the fine was because they actually did something about it. It does like you're telling on yourself just a little bit, which is not necessarily what leagues tend to do. So credit to the NBA for actually reacting, maybe looking at it. And, you know, taking those words that Fred did lay out in pretty blunt fashion and not just scoffing at them and punishing the player rather than actually looking at why those comments were made. Well, certainly something to chew on. Um, Did this mean something for Ben Taylor's rest of his season? I guess we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, We talked to Clark Kellogg yesterday, former NBA forward, of course, current CBS college basketball analyst. The Sweet 16 begins today. We've got a lot of that to tee up. We go through it with Clark on the other side of the break. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590. The Fan, it's Baby Friday. Set in your wake and rate picks of 595.90. Sweet 16 begins today, and we're teeing that up with our buddy Clark on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you have Leafs and Panthers, so maybe that's where you want to go for. What do you think? I don't know if I want to step in front of those Florida Panthers right now. I did last time, or I was on their side, and they let me down, so I don't know. You're chasing it at this point. But uh, you're right. The Sweet 16, maybe we go that route. And the Sweet 16 set up pretty beautifully, and we had the chance to talk to Clark Kellogg yesterday about it. Of course, he's sitting on the panel with Kenny and Chuck and they're having a great time, uh, and they're going to be entertained because it is set up wonderfully. And we began our conversation asking about the mix of teams left and how that sets up for a entertaining tournament. Yeah, I think we have seen what we're going to see going forward. I mean, coming into the tournament, all of us who follow college basketball really closely felt like we were going to see some surprises, some great games, a lot of drama and excitement. I don't think anybody anticipated FDU, Fairleigh Dickinson University, knocking off Purdue, another 16 beating a one. I thought, uh, Justin and Alicia, I thought we'd never see that. It happened in 2018 with UMBC in Virginia, and then five years later, almost to the day, we get another earthquake of an upset. So uh, parity is real. It's been trickling this direction for the last 15 years or so, and with the transfer portal, with the extra year provided to student-athletes because of COVID, the extra year of eligibility. Um, The world has gotten flatter in college basketball. There are more good players spread out, more older players that are also good spread out across more teams. So the mix is um, somewhat what we anticipated. I mean, you still got quite a few of your top four seed line teams in, in the mix. I think 
three, four, seven, looks like 10 of those teams. And then you've got the other six spread out between seeds five and 15 with Princeton. Yeah, that 15 sticks out for sure, uh, and they're in a matchup with Creighton to go to the Elite <laughs> Eight. Uh, uh, I, I, I got to kind of take on Cinderella. Like, they're, they're, I like Cinderella to a point, right? Eventually, I want to get to see the best teams go after the best teams, and I guess that does stick out to a certain extent. Uh, but if they earn their place, they earn their place, and Princeton so far has certainly earned their place. But again, when we get down to it, the Final Four in the National Championship game, I'm usually looking for two heavy hitters, and I think we are set up for two really great teams to meet each other in the national championship game. Uh, we've spent a couple days unpacking what we saw over the weekend through the first two rounds of the tournament. When you're still thinking about what you just witnessed, what you just saw, what is the thing that's top of mind for you from the weekend? Well, I think you start with 16 beating one, FDU over Purdue. Uh, dynamic guard play has been a bit of a theme across the tournament. I'm thinking of Marquise Noel, particularly from Kansas State. He's been magnificent. Um, UConn, how impressive they've been, particularly in second halves. I think they're plus 40 in the second half of the two games that they've played. Uh, Houston, you know, the other thing that stands out is that I was really concerned about Marcus Sasser's groin injury prior to the tournament. Um, As a matter of fact, for that reason, I picked Xavier to win that Midwest region because I just didn't know if Sasser would be able to get 100% healthy. And he looks to be as good as he was before the injury, which makes Houston very formidable. So those are the things, I mean, I was really, you know, growing can be really tricky and finicky and temperamental, but obviously uh, the benefit of youth and great care has led him to look much like he did prior to the injury, which is great for us because Houston is full strength, full, full speed ahead. And so, uh, yeah, those are the things that kind of stick out to me, other than Charles telling us he used to wash his, uh, (laughs) take a shower in his uniform to get it clean. (laughs) That was pretty outrageous. I I don't know that one. He's always got something funny, but that one caught me off guard as well. He's hilarious. But that one was crazy. And he was serious, though. He got got indignant when Kenny and I challenged him. So I've got to believe he – He did that at some point. I don't know of anybody else that did, but apparently he did. He's a unique man, uh, that's for sure. So Purdue falling, of course. Nobody like him. Yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. So Purdue falling, of course, was uh, something that we looked heavily at here in the Canadian market because of our Canadian guy, Zach Eady, and, of course, you yeah. know, following his storyline, yourself a lot closer. What kind of Canadian talent do we have? We're proud of, um, you know, what we know so far about Zach Eady. He might be making – that might be the last time he wears a Purdue jersey, um, but just, just the talent that a young Canadian um, has showcased in his NCAA career. He's remarkable. His level of improvement from the time he got to Purdue until now has been really fascinating. The fact that he's a really good athlete at that size because he played other sports, baseball and hockey particularly, before gravitating to basketball is a great story. And I think it's instructional to young kids if you have an enjoyment, if you, have an, if you enjoy playing multiple sports, uh, there's no rush to specialize. And um, he's a case in point how that's benefited him. Uh, No, and over the years, we've had phenomenal uh, representation from Canada across all of basketball, NBA and college. And that only continues because part of it is young kids that are watching and playing the game get to see 
folks who come from where they are who represent their particular place in the world. And anytime you can have images of success in whatever area, I think it lends itself well to younger people aspiring to be that themselves. And clearly in the world of sports, we've seen that countless times all over the world. So, um, yeah, Zach Eady is very, very impressive. I love what he's been able to do. He's going to be the player of the year, I think, pretty much by consensus for all of the national awards. I just turned in my ballot for the Naismith player of the year, and he was the first. He was the guy that I chose, and I imagine he'll rake in quite a few. And it'll be interesting to see if he decides to stay and come back for another year to develop and prepare himself for a pro career or if he chooses to pursue that um, this summer. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Let's get more hardware uh, north of the border. Okay, let's so spin it forward here uh, for the Sweet 16 matchups. Uh, which one do you have circled? Which Sweet 16 matchup are you most looking forward to this weekend? I would probably, man, there are, there, there are a few of them, Justin. I mean, Gonzaga, UCLA, heavyweight, the two and three seed from the West region. Um, Arkansas looking to get to the Elite Eight as less than a two-seed for the third straight year, which is unprecedented. That Arkansas-UConn matchup should be interesting. And then, you know, San Diego State-Alabama, because both of them are so, so good defensively, um, it could be a little ugly, but I think it's going to be taut and tense, physical, and uh, you got to have the women and children in that one. I think it's going to be just a rock em, sock em battle. And then the other one is Michigan State-Kansas State. Uh, Tom Izzo is remarkable in his success throughout his career in the tournament as a coach. I think this is his 15th Sweet 16, and I think he's 10-4 and four in his prior 14 Sweet 16 matchups. Uh, Kansas State, a great story. Jerome Tang in his first year getting that team to the Sweet, the sweet 16. So those are the ones that I've kind of extra circled. They're all circled, but those, those particular matchups got double circles. Yeah, if we're being honest, they're all circled at this point. So I want to run through the ones that are circled. I think we should start with Michigan State, Kansas State, and the Tom Izzo factor. It's like it's like a, a player that elevates his game, at least it seems, in big moments. That seems to be the story about uh, around Tom Izzo. What is yeah. the Tom Izzo factor to you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Justin. I thought about that quite a bit because I've been around him a lot. He's worked with us in the past when his teams haven't been in the tournament. I've interviewed him for profiles i've been to countless practices and done tons of games over the years uh, it's his preparation he's got great great enthusiasm for what he does um, he coaches his teams hard but in a really caring candid fashion to where there's interaction and interplay between he and his players that's kind of unique he allows his players to come back at him he's clearly the authority he's in charge but he's not afraid to go nose to nose with his players if they choose to voice their choice or opinion on occasion, all in a healthy kind of family dynamic. But I think it's his level of preparation and attention to detail and being able to get his players to really fully, completely surrender to what he and his staff are laying out in their game plans. And then they have good players. I mean, they don't have a really uber-talented team this year, but they've got a couple of seniors that are, uh, playing at a really high level. But I think it's his enthusiasm, his level of care and preparation, uh, and his grit. I think that rubs off on his teams in a positive way, particularly when the stakes are highest. 
So Creighton and Princeton obviously have our attention as well. I, I, unlike Justin, love a good Cinderella story. I'm a bit more fun on the show, as you <laughs> probably notice already. Um, but Creighton specifically, um, they've got a, a good draw. But do you think they're talented enough to break away from Princeton? And another reason we like this team in this matchup is, is obviously Ryan Nemhard, who's a Canadian. We just talked to his dad actually yep. on the show yesterday, and he's fired up about his boys, uh, one in the NBA, yeah. one in the NCAA right yeah. now. So we We've got the Canadian connection yeah. as well, but how do you see Creighton matching up against the current Cinderella-esque Princeton? Tell you what, that was one of my sleeper teams, Creighton. I actually had them get into this round, um, and now I think they've got a great chance to move to the Elite Eight. This team was playing at a top-five level early in the season. The big fella, Ryan Kalkbrenner, got hurt. They, he missed three games. They went on a six-game skid, and then they found themselves later in the season. But this is a really high-octane unit. The one issue is perhaps lack of depth. But in the tournament, because of the length of the timeouts, you typically can get by with a seven-man rotation. And it seems Creighton is playing with six-and-a-half guys for the most part. But the five, the six-and-a-half that play are really good, and the five starters are all lethal. All of them can give you 30 in a game. Ryan had 30 in the last game. Kalk Renner had 31 in the first tournament game. Well-oiled offensive machine and a team that's gotten better defensively. I like their chances against a very good Princeton team. Rebounds the ball well, uh, getting contributions from a lot of players. Um, it'll be an entertaining game. I think it'll be an up-tempo game, but I like the Blue Jays to find a way to get it done. And I think Ryan Nimhart will be right in the middle of it because he's so good at orchestrating offense for his team and himself. Uh, we're chatting with Clark Kellogg, who uh, covers college basketball for CBS and, of course, uh, played in the NBA. Um, as Like you, Clark, I have a lot of them uh, circled, but I got one circled and highlighted. And I think you're the same. You mentioned UCLA-Gonzaga first when I asked you about what you're looking forward to the most. I think it is the highest-profile matchup. It might be the shortest spread matchup. And it's a rematch of the legendary Final Four game from two years ago. Uh, lots of familiar yeah. names in the game yeah. because there hasn't been that much turnover. There's still there's obviously been some turnover, but Timmy and and Tiger Campbell, a lot of familiar names yeah. that are going to be rematching. And I feel like it might be the highest level game too, right? Because these teams are college basketball teams. It's not about necessarily high-end NBA prospects. These guys uh, are, are two really yeah. consistent programs that have been doing it with this group for a couple years now. Do you agree that it might be the highest level game from the Sweet 16? You know, that's an interesting perspective. I think it very well could be. It's a great contrast in styles. UCLA is one of the elite defensive teams in college basketball when you look at all of the metrics. And Gonzaga, by the same metrics, is the most efficient and high-octane offensive team. What's going to give? Gonzaga is 1-4 in in games where they score 70 or less. UCLA is 10-4 in games where they've scored 70 or less, which leads you to believe that they're more comfortable in a slowdown game. Can they slow down Gonzaga enough to keep it in the 70 or less range? Can Gonzaga be as efficient as they've been throughout this 11-game winning streak? They're averaging 91 points a game during this winning streak. I think it's going to be a great look at what gives, which team can exercise its will, or which team can find a way to win, even if the style they want to play isn't available 
And the point you make, Justin, about familiarity with the players um, adds to the level of intrigue in this one. I mean, you talk Drew Timmy, he's the leading active scorer in tournament games remaining in the field. Um, you talked about Tiger Campbell and Jaime Jaquez. Those guys have been part of some successful teams. And, you know, Mick Cronin is really underrated as a coach. Um, he's been to 12 straight NCAA tournaments since he's been at UCLA, and I think he went to seven or eight at Cincinnati. But the guys that are ahead of him on that consecutive tournament list are Mark Few, Tom Izzo, and Bill Self. They're in the 20s in consecutive tournament appearances. And Mick Cronin is next with 12, which talks about his level of success and coaching acumen. So I think it's a great, great matchup and one that a lot of people will be locked in for. Uh, the two teams with the most explosive talent, we'll say, probably Alabama and Houston. Uh, but explosive talent is not the only thing. It's not the determining factor of whether or not you're going to have success. And both Alabama and Houston are, <clears throat> excuse me, meeting number fives in the tournament and in the Sweet 16. Do you think either San Diego State with Alabama or Miami with Houston can trouble these two number one seeds? Well, Miami does a really good job forcing turnovers, and they score the ball from multiple positions. They've got three wing players that can really go get buckets in Isaiah Wong, um, Jordan Miller, Nigel Pack. Uh, those guys are really explosive offensive players. San Diego State, not quite as explosive offensively, but close to being as good as Alabama is defensively and has a physical tenacity to the nine players that play that really can – challenge teams. Uh, I still think Alabama and Houston come out on top because those teams have shown uh, they can win in high-scoring ways, games, and they can also um, win in ugly uh, sandpaper-type games. So I give the edge to, 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 the high, to the number one seeds there, Alabama and Houston. But I think those teams will compete. But ultimately, I just think the talent, the depth, the offensive firepower of Alabama, and, and the same – um, for Houston, in terms of rebounding and defensive prowess, will make the difference in those particular games. Clark, I wonder how dangerous you think uh, Florida Atlantic is, another Cinderella story in the making, um, especially because we uh, we have a connection to Tennessee. We have a huge affinity for Charles Davis, who is a CVS guy. He's one of our favorite guests. Uh, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know if you've crossed paths, but we are uh, we got a little soft spot for Tennessee, so I kind of need to know the outlook, if he's going to be a happy guy or not when we get him on the show next. Yeah, yeah, you know what? They are elite defensively, one of the top two or three teams in all the defensive metrics when you look at points allowed and field goal percentage defense and those metrics that measure defense. Um, and they've been fantastic in the tournament. They simply overwhelmed Furman um, with the defensive physicality. They've got size, depth. Nothing is easy against them. Uh, I think that very well could be um, too much for Florida Atlantic. Although I will say this, Florida Atlantic is a really good offensive team. They share the ball. They've got multiple shot makers and playmakers. The key is, are they going to be able to get the space they need to operate? Um, I think Tennessee closes off some of their, their lanes to the basket and makes it really hard for them to get scores. Um, so for that reason, I'm giving Tennessee a slight edge. And they've still got to be – they were good offensively in the second half, um, Tennessee was. So I think that's going to be important. I, just, I don't know if they can do it 
simply by uh, trying to out-defense Florida Atlantic. I think they're going to have to be efficient offensively, too, but I think they'll be up to the task. It's going to be a rough weekend for Ailish Clark if she sees Charles Davis sad in a Tennessee Volunteers hat. So hopefully Tennessee can hold serve (laughs) in a big game. Okay, the one game I think we haven't got to is Texas Xavier. Their first big challenges, it seems like, in the tournament coming with each other. Uh, In terms of like a long run, who do you think has a better outlook, a better opportunity to take it far into the tournament? Is that Texas or is that Xavier? You know, I like both of these teams. I love Xavier's offensive firepower, and recently they've been better defensively when they've needed to be. I mean, in that game against Kennesaw State in the second half, they come from double digits down, and it's in large measure because of the defensive resolve they showed. Texas has been consistent at both ends all season long, one of the more efficient teams at both ends of the floor, offensively and defensively. Um, But I like Xavier. I like Xavier. They're not very deep. But they, too, have five guys that average double digits, uh, which makes them potent offensively. Uh, Their coach is terrific. Sean Miller is one at Arizona, and this is his second stint at Xavier. Um, He's been to the Elite Eight a couple of times. Rodney Terry's done a marvelous job as the interim coach at Texas. This will be a high-scoring game I'm anticipating. And if it is such, I think Xavier has enough to – to win that matchup of two, the two and the three seed. And if they do, because they're so good offensively and have got better defensively, uh, I think they've got a chance to, to uh, upset Houston, who I think will be the team they'll be facing uh, in the regional final. Hey, Clark, this was fun. Uh, good luck with Charles and Kenny this weekend. Uh, and enjoy the games. Hopefully the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight lives up to the hype. Uh, I suspect, though, that it will. Well, Justin, Ailish, a pleasure to hang out with you, and this is such a great time of year. I'm privileged to get to do what God's graced me to do, and um, it will be fun. It's impossible not to be. This thing, this tournament, this March Madness, magic always, always delivers. It always delivers. We appreciate it. Once again, enjoy the weekend, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you, guys. Clark Kellogg, former NBA forward and current CBS College basketball analyst. And as we teed up Thursday's Sweet 16 matchups, you got four of them tonight starting at 6.30 p.m. The late one, though, for me, Gonzaga, UCLA, 9.45 tip. But that is the game of the night for me. Three Gonzaga versus two UCLA. It's going to be real good. That's definitely the one. I'm all over UCLA. My brackets, I bet on them outright. I'm a little nervous. I'm on Gonzaga, That's, so are you? it's I'm tough th- for us. I'm getting a little nervous. I'm like, should I, like, I don't know, ride Gonzaga because I'm so leveraged on UCLA? I'm not really sure. I'm going to be really tuned into that one. Very excited. This is my favorite. I, like, the first four days are fun. I kind of like when it's a little bit more settled and you kind of know what you're mm-hmm. cheering for, what you need, how your bracket's doing, how everybody else is doing. This is kind of when I'm most excited about the tournament so I'm I'm pretty jacked up for the Sweet 16. Yeah, maybe your picks for the wake rate come from that uh, four games and of course the Maple Leafs at the Florida Panthers as well tonight. Lots of late night viewing if you're going to stay up and see that tip. 9.40pm is the big one, Gonzaga versus UCLA. Uh, send that in at 590-590. We got a great guest on the other side of the break. Bruce Boudreaux, former NHL coach of, uh, coach, of course, most recently with the Canucks, and now he's working an NHL network analyst. He got to be heavily influential in maybe Luke Shen's last couple years in Vancouver. Now he's coming over to the Maple Leafs to talk about that, but also, Bruce, there it is. He's next.